Okay, it's time for you to hear God's uh, word together. Uh, but before we begin, let me just share a couple notes. First uh, is that the sermon notes and manuscripts are available on our website. Just go to jakarta.hmcc.net and go right there on the page to help you follow along. Uh, secondly, lastly, let's put aside any distractions as best we can so that we can give our hearts and our attention fully to God's word. Uh, let me just pray for us once more uh, before we hear preaching God's word. God, we are your people. You are our God. So as you speak, help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts willing to respond in faith and in worship and transformation as you work through your word and by your spirit in each of us, Lord. We pray that no matter what we're going through today, that you would speak to us each personally and corporately as a church. You know what we need to hear. So we pray that you would speak in and that you would have ears willing to receive it. We love you, Lord. We thank you and pray this in your son Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, uh, we are currently in part 23 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're studying the gospel account of Luke from chapters 4 through 9, which primarily record Jesus' public ministry in the area of Galilee. Uh, so today's sermon is titled Jesus and the Storm. So again, I want to show us a few pictures of storms, and I want you just to imagine that you were there and what you might be feeling in this. So this is the first picture. So imagine you're right there. Not that one. There you go. Uh, as you see the waves crashing high over the shore, and let's say you're standing right there, the waters are falling on, the, on, on you. How do you feel? Now, next picture. This one might be kind of familiar for some of us. Uh, as you walk through the flooded streets with trees bending at the force of the wind, what do you feel? And the next picture. As the storm rips off the roof of your home and leaves you at the mercy of the violent winds and the rains, what do you feel? You know, we've all been through storms. Some are milder, you know, lifting the crashing waves just a few meters beyond normal. Some are more severe, flooding the streets and taking out our electricity. But some are violent, ripping your home apart and threatening your very life. What's most frightening about storms is that they are completely outside of our control. In the more violent storms, nothing can stop them. They, be, they begin to rip through all the things that we thought were intact that brought us safety and comfort. Now, even if we can't relate to these kinds of violent storms, we all know what it's like to have storms in our lives. The times of hardship, trials, suffering. Now, some are milder, some are more severe, and some feel so violent as they seem to rip our lives apart. And oftentimes what's so frightening about these storms, these storms in our lives, is that they feel completely outside of our control. So what can we do in the midst of the storms in our lives? That's what we'll dive deeper into as we look at our passage for today. So the one thing for today is trust that Jesus is Lord over the storms of our lives. Trust that Jesus is Lord over the storms of our lives. 
Uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 22 to 25. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Just a bit of context before we jump into today's passage. So far in Luke chapter 8, Jesus has spoken two complementary parables. The parable of the seed and the parable of the lamp. To emphasize the vital importance of hearing God's word with faith, perseverance, and good works that evidence and shine the light of the gospel to others. And now we're entering into a new section where for the remainder of chapter 8, Luke will present three narratives that highlight Jesus' authority over the sea, the demonic, and disease and death. But the primary context for these narratives are not the crowds, but his close disciples, whom he will later send out on mission on the basis of his authority, Jesus' lordship over all creation. In other words, in the remainder of chapter 8, Jesus is revealing himself to his close disciples in extraordinary ways so that they will learn through trials how to live the Christian life and how to carry out the Christian mission with persevering faith in who he is as Lord over all. So that's where we are in today's passage as we begin this new section in Luke chapter 8. So let's read Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. It says this. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your feet? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obeyed him. This is God's word. We'll look at this passage in two parts. First, the storm, verses 22 to 23. Second, the calm, verses 24 to 25. So first, the storm. Again, verses 22 to 23 say this. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. In the original language, one day literally reads, it came to pass on one of these days. Luke doesn't specify the exact date, but in Mark's gospel account, he locates this narrative occurring on the evening of the same day when Jesus told the parable of the seed. So after a long day of ministry to the crowds, Jesus got into a boat with his close disciples and told them to set sail to the other side of the lake, which was about 11 or 13 kilometers across. And as he set sail, Jesus fell asleep. Although Mark tells us that Jesus had a cushion, I can't imagine that this was a comfortable bed. But after faithfully and joyfully doing what God the Father had called him to do all that day, Jesus was dead tired. And he, was, he fell fast asleep on the hard boards of the fishing boat. Now perhaps some of us feel exhausted these days. We've had days, weeks, months, of full days, late nights, and early mornings. And you're just tired. And what you need to know is that your Lord and Savior also knows what it's like to be tired. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Even though he is God Almighty, Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses. On that boat, we see the one who never tires, knocked out sleeping. We do not have a God that says to us, I can't relate to what you're going through. 
No, we have a God who became like us in every way so that he can help us in every way. We do not have a distant God who loves us from afar, but we have a God who comes into the boat with us and who experiences what we experience alongside of us. Just let that sink in for a moment. In Christ, we see the source of eternal joy weeping. We see the one who rained manna from the sky experiencing hunger pains. We see the creator of water becoming thirsty. And we see the author of life dying and rising for sinners like us. Jesus being fully God and fully man is not just a doctrine for us to believe. But this is a wonderful truth for us to take comfort in. That Jesus knows what I'm going through. Jesus knows what I'm going through. If you're a follower of Christ, whenever you're exhausted, whenever you're weeping, whenever you're hungry, whenever you're thirsty, and even when you're on your deathbed, take comfort in knowing that Christ has gone before you. He knows what it's like to experience what you're experiencing. He is with you. And just as surely as he rose from the grave, he will carry you through. Now going back, as Jesus was asleep, a windstorm suddenly came down on the lake, which was not uncommon for this particular lake. This was Lake Gennesaret, which was also known as the Sea of Galilee. The lake is over 200 meters below sea level and surrounded by mountains. So the warm air rising to the surface of the lake, encountering the cool air funneling through the mountains, often produced sudden and violent storms. But this particular windstorm was unusually violent, where the boat began filling with water. And even though they had professional fishermen who spent their lives on this lake, they were still in great danger. Even the experienced fishermen were not capable of handling it. Uh, this is a 17th century painting by Rembrandt that attempts to depict what it might have been like to be on that boat. I know it might be still hard to imagine from a picture, but let me try to describe it. Imagine being on that boat in the midst of this violent storm. Feel the torrential rains and the strong winds blowing at 160 kilometers per hour. See the wall-like waves as high as 10 meters crashing upon your boat. You're frantically trying to bail out the water, even as the boat is getting swamped with more water than before, as waves continue to pound on that boat like hundreds of wrecking balls. You want to vomit as the wind and the waves are violently hurling you in every direction. You see the mast bending further and further, and you're afraid that it's going to snap like a broken bone. You're still in the boat, but you already feel like you're drowning in every way. And as you see the professional fishermen overwhelmed in panic, you begin to lose all hope. You feel like you're about to die. Now, you may not know exactly what it's like to experience this kind of storm, but I'm sure most of us know what it's, what it's like to feel overwhelmed, swamped, tossed around, nauseous, dread, hopeless, anxious, fearful, panic. Perhaps it's a never-ending to-do list at work. Perhaps it's a shocking diagnosis at the hospital. Perhaps it's a heart-wrenching situation in your marriage or family. Perhaps it's an enormous debt, a loss of a family member, 
a toxic work environment, a relational conflict, or something else. Like those disciples in the violent storm, we feel captive to what's happening to us. We feel like our lives are outside of our control. And no matter how hard we're working, we can't get enough water out of the boat. We're sinking fast and we feel like there's nothing we can do about it. Have you felt like that? So what do we do with the storms of our lives that are outside of our control? What do the frantic disciples do? That's what we'll look at next. So first, the storm. And second, the calm. Verse 24 says this. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. So when the disciples felt helpless in the midst of the storm, they turned to Jesus. They cried out to him in their desperation, and Jesus awoke. You know, what's crazy to me is that in the midst of the violent storm, Jesus was still sleeping. And that should just tell us how tired he must have been. But it's interesting to know what got Jesus up. Even though Jesus' disciples were fearing for their lives amidst this intense storm, Jesus didn't seem to be bothered by the storm at all. He was sound asleep. But at the sound of his disciples crying out to him, Master, Master, we are perishing. That's what awoke Jesus at once and brought him to their immediate If you're a disciple of Jesus, you can take great comfort in knowing that Jesus hears you when you cry out to him. He's not bothered by the storm, but the moment one of his disciples cries out to him, Jesus immediately responds with his full attention. Now every morning, my first prayer, even before I get out of bed, is simply, God, help me. I don't feel like I have much energy to get out of bed, but I need to get up and start the day. And throughout the day, when I feel overwhelmed or stuck, I utter the same prayer, God, help me. And time and time again, he hears me and comes to my aid. No, that doesn't mean that all of my problems disappear, though I don't doubt that he could do that. Rather, he provides me the strength and the insight to do what I know I could never do on my own. He gives me strength when I'm weary. He gives me patience when I'm frustrated. He gives me faith when I'm doubting. He gives me wisdom when I'm clueless. He gives me encouragement when I'm downcast. He gives me peace when I'm fearful. If we know that the Sovereign Lord over all creation hears and responds to us when we cry out to Him, shouldn't we cry out to Him a lot more? Now perhaps you feel like your problem is too small to pray for. Now I hate to admit it, but I used to think like that as well. I used to judge people who would pray for a parking spot because I didn't think that such a thing was worthy to be prayed for. Now I'm embarrassed to say that now. But you know what? I unashamedly pray for open parking spots now. And you know what? I seem to find open parking spots a lot more now. You know, one narrative in scripture that helped me understand how God cares for even the smallest aspects of our lives is from 2 Kings chapter 6, where a man's axe head fell into the Jordan River while he was cutting down a tree. And he cried out, oh no, it was borrowed. And then Elisha, one of God's prophets, performed a miracle to make the iron axe head float so the man could get it back. God performed a miracle for a man who cried out to him about losing something that was borrowed. 
Now, when I first read that, it completely changed my paradigm of what I can cry out to God for. He cares for even the smallest anxiety in my life. In fact, he invites us to cast all of our anxieties upon him. Whether it's needing to find an open parking spot, worrying about losing something that was borrowed, feeling overwhelmed by a situation at work, something going on in my family, fearing for my life, or anything else, I can cry out to my Lord and Savior and know with full confidence that He hears me and that He will respond to me. So when the disciples cried out to Jesus, He immediately awoke, He rebuked the wind and the raging waves, they ceased, and there was a calm. It all happened so fast, it's almost anticlimactic. Imagine being one of the disciples in the boat. You feel like you are drowning, and you are preparing to die in this relentless storm that was completely outside of your control. And all of a sudden, Jesus speaks, and everything stopped. The rains stopped. The winds stopped. The waves stopped. The screams stopped. Silence. Calm. And into that silence, Jesus speaks again. Verse 25 says this. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? So after Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, he then gives a subtle rebuke to his disciples, saying, Where is your faith? You know, the great irony here is that what bothered the disciples was the storm. But what bothered Jesus was his disciples' lack of faith. To be clear, Jesus is not rebuking his disciples for their fear. It's totally understandable that they would be fearful in a life-threatening situation. Anyone in their right mind, if they were in a life-threatening situation, would be fearful. So that was not the issue. The issue for Jesus was not that they were fearful. But the issue was that their fear had engulfed their faith. Their fear of the storm had swallowed up their faith in Jesus. In that moment, they didn't really trust that Jesus being in the boat with them made much of a difference. They still thought that they were all going to die. And that's what bothered Jesus. The disciples had listened to his preaching and teaching. They believed that he had authority to forgive sins. They had seen him cast out demons and heal the sick, lepers, paralyzed, and deformed. And they had even witnessed him raise the dead right before their eyes. But in this time of testing, it seemed like everything that they had heard and seen from Jesus up to that point was just being thrown out the window. It's like they'd never met him before. The reality is that storms and trials are the norm for this life. And we should not be surprised by that. Since man first sinned against God, sin has corrupted everything about God's good creation. It's not just that we're sinners who sin against God and one another, but the effects of sin permeate everything in this broken world. Why do we struggle with loneliness when we have a God and a spiritual family that loves us? Why do we struggle with having children as married couples? Why do we struggle with mental health issues, physical illnesses, and one day physical death? Why are storms and trials the norm for this life? It's because 
we sin against God, sin now has entered into this world, and we feel its effect in everything in this broken world now. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus told us honestly, in the world, you will have tribulation. But he did not leave us without hope. For he also said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Because Christ has overcome the world, if we are united to him through faith, then we also will overcome the world. Jesus experienced the full weight of our sin upon himself on the cross, dying in our place for the punishment of sin that we deserve. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he resurrected from the grave so that all who repent of their sins and believe in him as Lord and Savior can be forgiven their sin, counted righteous in God's sight, and have hope that we too will one day be resurrected as Jesus ushers in the new heavens and new earth, where there will be no more sin and its effects, no more storms and trials, where we will enjoy God and one another forever in a renewed, restored creation. That is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is the everlasting hope that we have if we are followers of Christ. But we are not there yet fully. And Jesus tells us very honestly, in the world, you will have tribulation. In other words, you should expect storms and trials to be the norm for this life. But for some reason, we're tempted to live with a baseline expectation not of storms and trials, but of comfort, convenience, and control. We expect to be satisfied in this world. And so when the storms come, and they always do, and we begin to suffer, we begin to think that something strange is happening to us. Because we did not expect the storms in this life, we get frustrated and disappointed when God would allow us to suffer through them, because we don't think we should be experiencing any of them. As long as we think that the storms and suffering are abnormal in this life, we'll be tempted to see them as signs of God's, God's absence and lack of care for us. But the complete opposite is true. Christ came into the world to enter into our suffering, to be present with us through them, to free us from them, to give us hope of glory and a life to come without the presence of sin and suffering any longer. He came to be present with us in our suffering and to lead us out of it because he cares for us. Unfortunately, Jesus' disciples were taken by surprise by the storm. And they made the faulty conclusion that Jesus didn't care that they were perishing. This becomes clear in Mark's gospel account of this narrative, where they didn't just say, we are perishing, but they said to Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care, Jesus, that we are perishing? What a terrible, hurtful conclusion for Jesus' disciples to make up without him. In fact, the exact opposite was true. The very fact that Jesus was in the boat with them showed that he was not absent and that he cared for them. And little did they know that Jesus would ultimately go to the cross as their substitute so that their lives would not only be delivered from this temporal storm, but their lives would be delivered from eternal punishment for their sin. Jesus absolutely cared for them. You know, whenever you're suffering through the storms of life, don't ever be surprised 
For Jesus told us that storms would come. And don't ever believe the lie that Jesus is absent and doesn't care for you. No, Jesus is right there in the boat with you, and he absolutely cares for you. In fact, even before the storms come, he's already in the boat with you. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the only way that we'll be able to endure the storms of life. We need to trust that Jesus is Lord over the storms of our life, and he's right there in the boat with us. Now the key question for Jesus, the, the key question that Jesus has for us is, where is your faith? But the key question that we have for Jesus is, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. Who is this person? In the Old Testament, nobody has control over the wind and the water like this except God. Nobody. God separates the waters at creation. God splits the Red Sea and the Jordan River. God sends great storms upon the sea, and God stills the roaring of the sea. Specifically, Psalm 107 probably came to mind for Jesus' disciples. Psalm 107, verses 25 to 30 say this. For he, that is God, commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. The courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men who were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired days. This passage is all about God. And yet Jesus' disciples, that's exactly what they just experienced. Jesus had done what only God could do throughout the entire Old Testament. Jesus doesn't even pray, but he directly rebukes the wind and the waves, and everything stopped. Nobody had that kind of authority over the winds and the waves in the Old Testament, except God. So as the disciples begin to ponder this question of, who then is this? They begin to realize that Jesus is no mere man. But they don't have a category for who he is. Because he's obviously a man. But he's doing things that only God can do. So they can't understand who this person is. It'll become clearer to them later on, especially after Jesus' death and resurrection. But for now, they can't quite answer that question yet. Who then is this? All they can do is fear and marvel. These two responses of fear and wonder or marveling were common descriptions of how people responded to both Jesus and God throughout Luke's Gospel account. The disciples' fear of the storm has dissipated, but now they're filled with a greater fear of Jesus. Who is this who's in the boat with us right now? But this is a different kind of fear. It's the kind of fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. They're asking the right questions now. They're beginning to gain insight into the knowledge of the Holy One sitting beside them in the boat. In fact, you could say that this was the whole point of the storm. The climax of this narrative is not the stilling of the storm. That happened so fast, it's so anticlimactic. But the climax of this narrative is the response of the disciples afterwards, and the who then is this question that they pose. 
the whole narrative culminates at their response and their question because that was the whole point of the storm. The storm was not a meaningless trial, but the purpose of it was to show them their inability, to drive them to Jesus, and to reveal more about who Jesus is to them. Now for us, we need to know that there is no such thing as a meaningless storm in our lives. But it always comes at the hand of our sovereign Lord and with his good purposes. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that even in the most tragic and evil of circumstances, what the enemy means for evil, God means it for good. We may not understand all of God's purposes in the storms that he sends our way. But at the very least, we can know that he is showing our inability. He is driving us to Jesus. And he is revealing more about who Jesus is to us. And even more, God says this in James chapter 1, verse 2 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. For all true disciples of Jesus, trials do not pull us away from Jesus, but they push us closer to him. Trials do not weaken our faith, but they strengthen it. Trials do not leave us lacking, but they ensure that we lack nothing as we cling to Christ. Tim Keller, author of Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he writes this. It's an exaggeration to say that no one finds God when suffering comes into their lives, but it's not a big one. When pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. Over the years, I also came to realize that adversity did not merely lead people to believe in God's existence. It pulled those who already believed into a deeper experience of God's reality, love, and grace. One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with Him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. End quote. For Jesus' disciples, there lay ahead of them many more trials than just this storm on the lake. But Jesus was teaching them in word and deed that if they can trust him in this storm, then they can trust him in any situation that they ever find themselves in. And the same is true for us as disciples of Jesus Christ. Whatever storm you're facing right now, look back at all the previous storms in your life and remember Jesus' past faithfulness and trustworthiness proven over and over and over again in our lives. Do not be like the shallow heart without roots that initially responds enthusiastically to God's word, but then falls away in times of testing. Rather, cry out to God to help you to live out of the good heart that he provides for us by his spirit, to hear his word, believe it, hold fast to it, and bear fruit in accordance with it. Don't believe the lie that Jesus is uncaring and absent in the midst of your storm, but trust that Jesus awakens to your aid when you cry out to him, and that the Lord of all creation is with you in the boat. Now perhaps you're here today and you feel like you're not in a storm right now. But to be honest, you kind of wish you were in one. 
You feel bored in the still waters. You feel like the life is mundane and perpetually stuck in a rut, not really going anywhere. If that's you, listen to what God's word says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 and 4. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good because it's God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Here, we're called to pray for those in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives, so that under those conditions the gospel would maximally advance, so that more people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So if you feel like there's not much going on in your life right now, praise God. On some level, we pray for such conditions so that we can advance the gospel. Now, there was a period in my life in university when everything seemed to be going well. No apparent storms or trials. And when I shared this with a mentor, he said to me something like, you know, that's great to hear. Use this time to soak in as much scripture as you can and to share the gospel with who you can. Enjoy this season and milk it, but just get ready to fight again, because seasons like this are more the exception than the norm. In essence, he was counseling me not to waste this season in my life that was peaceful and quiet. And I took his wise counsel, and that's what I tried to do. I soaked up God's word. I read the Bible, I tried to memorize it, I tried to store it in my heart, I shared the gospel with many around me, and I even had the privilege to lead something right. But then, the storms came again in my life, and he was right. The storms and trials have been the norm of my life, and I'm sure it's been the norm of many of our lives. And that season of peace and quiet was the exception that I'm glad I didn't face. You know, many of the verses that have scored in my mind and heart even to this day are when I memorized it back then in that quiet season of my life. So if you're living a peaceful and quiet life right now, don't waste it, but maximize it to advance the gospel in your own life and in the lives of those around you. Soak in as much scripture as you can. Learn about God as much as you can. Share the gospel with those you can. Know that such seasons are not the norm. And rather than passively waiting for the storm to come, maximize this season that you're in right now in the gospel of your season. Now perhaps you're here today and you know you're in a storm. But it's not a quick storm that comes and goes. But you feel like you're in a never-ending chronic storm. You desperately want this storm to be rebuked and calmed immediately. But it's been years now, and you're losing hope. You want to trust in God's timing, but you don't know how much longer you can endure. For you, I want you to know that you're not alone in feeling that way. Many of the laments in the psalm ask God over and over again, How long, O Lord? You're struggling. It's been years. How long, O Lord? The Apostle Paul also knew what it was like to have a chronic thorn in his flesh. He pleaded, he begged God three times that he would take it away. But God didn't. That thorn in the flesh remained with him. And instead, God told him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's whole perspective of his chronic thorn began to change. He said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Like Jacob, Paul realized that he was better off with a lifelong limp from God if it would draw him closer to him. Even though it was so painful, if it drew to God more, it was worth it. He could thank God for it. He could even rejoice in it. Now, it's easy to read that and see the result in Paul's life and feel like that's great. But how, what does it practically look like when you get there? How do you go from panicking in a storm to experiencing peace in Christ in the midst of it? For most of us, it's not going to be an on and off switch. No, again, I don't doubt that God would do that. For myself, I experienced what felt like a terrible storm in 2015. That was the year that I got married, the year that we helped start HMCC of Jakarta. And for the first time in my life, as a new husband and a new pastor, I felt like I was failing at everything. As newlyweds, Tina and I would regularly stay up until 1 in the morning, talking through issues together. And we had a lot of issues to talk through. And there would be many tears shed by both me and her who were trying to understand and trying to best love one another, but somehow, some way, we keep hurting each other. And we try to work through those things. And then we wake up at 5 a.m. the next day. I was a newly commissioned pastor in 2014, which was less than a year before, just beginning seminary. And I had no idea what I was doing. But I was quickly thrust into basically pastoring a whole church. I felt like I stood in the shadow of the founding pastor, and it was a standard that I could never hit. I wasn't as experienced. I didn't have as much capacity. I didn't have the same skill sets. I would feel physically nauseous whenever I had to leave meetings or preach sermons. I just felt like I wasn't good enough. And I was extra sensitive to comments that people would make, which objectively had no negative connotation whatsoever. But I just kept hearing and taking them personally as, you suck. Each morning, I had no motivation to get out of bed. I just wanted to crawl up in a ball and not face the world. At times, I couldn't even get myself to read God's word. So I would just play the psalm on audio on my phone, one psalm after another, until maybe 10 to 15 psalms played, and God's voice had encouraged me enough to just get out of bed and do something things. To feel like I was failing in my marriage, failing in my work, I've never had such a depressing time in my life. Uh, growing up, I generally had the mentality that if I worked hard enough, I could do anything. In high school, I did well in academics, wrestling, and violin, and those are very different things that I did well. <laughs> and throughout university, I continued to do well in the things that I put my mind to. But now, in that moment, in those years, no matter how hard I worked, I felt like I was drowning. No matter how much water I got out of the boat, there was always another 10-meter wave crashing on top of me. This is probably the first time in my life that I actually had the passing thought of taking my own life. But as painful as this time was for me, this was a time that I grew more intimate, much more intimate in my relationship with God. My prayers were the most raw that they had ever been. They sounded a lot more like a song. Not so eloquent, actually, but at least the feeling of it. 
They were often me just crying and screaming at the top of my lungs to God in my heart. I'm just telling them how I felt. And I prayed through the gospel that I believed in hell faster. But at times, even that was so painful to do. Because I knew that I wasn't responding according to the gospel that I believed. And in some twisted way, rather than the gospel being a source of comfort and peace for me, I would be using the gospel to kick myself even more. I know that the gospel says that I'm not good enough, and that's why I need a savior. I know that. So why do I keep trying to find my identity worth in being good enough? And I'll get more frustrated with myself because I wasn't acting in accordance to what the gospel teaches. And I knew that. But I continued to just get on my knees day in and day out to cry out to him. Proclaiming the gospel to myself, even, even as I prayed. God, forgive me for constantly going back to finding my identity and worth in my performance. When you have already secured my identity and worth in your perfect worth to me on the cross. God, I confess that I am a sinner. I'm not good enough, and I will never be good enough. But I praise you for living the perfect life that I could not live, and dying the death that I deserve for my sin, so that now, as I repent and believe in you, I know that I am forever secure in Christ. That's who I am. That's where my identity lies. That's where my security lies. Give me the grace that I need to live out of my secure identity in Christ, rather than trying to prove or earn my identity for my own performance. You know, and as I prayed those things, I would gain a sense of peace for a moment. But then as soon as I got up from my knees, another 10 meter wave would just crash on me again. And I would be flooded with feelings of inadequacy and overwhelm all over again. And then I'd be back on my knees praying the same things all over again. And I did that for years. And eventually, I don't know how and I don't know when, but I began to internalize my secure identity in Christ more and more. It wasn't just the gospel that I knew. It became more and more who I am. And the cruel master of my performance began to have less and less of a grip on me. And I still struggle with the same thing. So in a sense, the storm has never lifted. But by God's grace, I have a stronger confidence that Jesus is with me in this storm and that I don't need to fear. Of course, I still feel fear and overwhelm at times, but they no longer engulf my faith. My faith is still there. It's still present. It's still pulling me out of that fear. My faith in Christ progressively tames my fear and overwhelm. To be honest, even though I would never wish to go through such an intense storm again, I just don't know how God would have humbled me and brought me into a deep relationship with him if he had not put me in that storm. I don't see any other way he could have done that. And so in the bigger picture, I'm so thankful that he loves me enough to draw me near and shape me through those storm. Otherwise, how proud and self-sufficient I would be. And how terrible that would be for myself, my family, our church, and all those around me. But God, in His grace, broke me early in my marriage and pastoral ministry so that I would know Him more intimately and be a sharper instrument in His hands.
to close, I want us to know that it's not just you and Jesus in the boat. It's not just you and Jesus in the boat. But Jesus revealed himself to all his disciples in the boat. You know, even though our storms may be different, we're in the same boat, so to speak. And Jesus graciously provides us one another to remind us of our inability and of who he is and to go to him together in the midst of our storms. You know, even if we cannot relate 100% with what another brother or sister is going through, we have the same source of hope that we can point them to. You know, sometimes we do that by just being present, listening to them, praying with them, going to Jesus together. Sometimes our physical presence and our spoken prayers are the tangible ways that others will experience Jesus' presence with them. You know, the Christian life of all its forms was never meant to be lived alone. We all have tendencies not to trust that Jesus is Lord of this world of our life, especially as we feel the wind and the waves tossing us to and fro. That's all we see, that's all we feel. And so we need our brothers and sisters around us to remind us of who Jesus is and that he's also with us in that hope. So as a church, let's not act as if we're all on our own separate boats going through our own private storm. That's not the case. But let's remind each other that no matter what storms may come, we're in the same boat with Jesus together. And he's going to carry us through for even the winds and the waves obey him. He is Lord over all creation, and he is God with us. Here's uh, the life application. First, what storms have you faced in the past? Remember and praise Jesus for his past faithfulness. You know, this is the pattern that we see all throughout the psalms. As the psalmists are overwhelmed with fear, confusion, and frustration amidst their trials, they remember God's past faithfulness to them and to all his people. They praise him for his unchanging character, and they choose to trust in him again. So start with remembrance and praise for Jesus' past faithfulness in your life. And if you don't know where to start, go back to the cross where your Savior died in your place for your sin. And hopefully that begins to jog your memory of everything else that he has done for you as well. Second, what storms are you facing right now? Cry out to Jesus and proclaim the gospel to yourself. You know, the worst thing you can do in the midst of a storm is to give Jesus the silent treatment. Again, the psalms show us the psalmist say some very raw and difficult things to God. But the good thing is they're saying them to God. Because God invites us to do so. And he hears us, he responds. Remember that at the very moment Jesus hears the cries of his disciples, he awakes to their aid. So cry out to him, knowing that he hears, he's the Lord, and he's right there with you in the boat. And proclaim the gospel to yourself. Declare that God is your creator and that you're made in his image. Declare that you've sinned against him and you are deserving of his wrath. Declare that he loves you still and sent Jesus Christ to do what we were completely powerless to do on our behalf. To live, die, and resurrect so that our sins would be forgiven. And so that this sinful, broken world with all this suffering and storm would one day be renewed and restored. And again, repent of your sin and believe in him as your Lord and Savior. And find your identity and worth secure in who he is and what he's done for you. And proclaim those great gospel truths to yourself over and over and over again. And over the course of our lives, by his grace, we will find that our fears and overwhelm no longer engulf our faith in Christ. 
but our faith in Christ is taming our fears to overwhelm more and more. Third, what storms are those around you facing? Draw near to them to listen, pray, and point them to Jesus. Now, when you're suffering, it's easy to only feel your own pain and be blinded to everyone and everything else. We get tunnel vision and think that we're the only ones going through such pain. But that's just not true. When I think about the members in our church, I am overwhelmed by the intensity of storms and trials that many of them are facing right now in their lives. Many of you are facing right now in your lives. You know, Tina and I, there are certain members that we are praying for every single day because of the intensity of storms that they're going through right now. You know, I wish I could do more for them. But I humbly accept that I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior. There's only one Jesus Christ. I know him. I love him. And I desperately want others to know and love him too and see that he is all that they need even as they find that he is all that they have. So I try to listen, pray, point them to Jesus as best as I can. You know, as a spiritual family, let's look not only to our own interests but also to the interests of others. And let's look around the boat and draw near to our fellow brothers and sisters who are also facing storms in their lives. And let's listen, pray, and point them to Jesus. For Jesus alone is Lord over all. So once again, the one thing is trust that Jesus is Lord over the storms of our life. If we're able, can we all stand and respond to God together? Let's begin to take this time to go through the light application in our prayer. Let's begin to remember the past storms that we've gone through that Jesus has taken us through. Let's praise him for it. Let's look at the storms that we're facing right now. Let's be the crowd. Doesn't have to be a long prayer. Just say, God, help me. I can't get through this alone. But I know that because you are with me, it makes a world of difference. Help me. I know it might not be immediate, but I know that you are with me. I've overcome this world. So help me to overcome this storm in my life. Let's begin to look around. Perhaps there's some friends, brothers and sisters around you that you know are suffering. Begin to pray for them, intercede for them. Asking God to draw near to them, even as they draw near to Him. Let's pray that they would see their inability. They would see that, that Christ is the only one who can help them get through this time. They find comfort in Jesus in Him. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you just begin to pray that prayer or that question. Who then is this? As you hear this word, Maybe just even asking God, who are you? There are so many people around me here in this room who seem to know who you are, but I don't yet. I'm confused. I don't have a category for you yet. Help me discover who you are. And if you really are Lord of all, then you reveal yourself to me. Give me eyes to see and the willingness to respond with repentance and faith. So however you need to respond, let's begin walking through the application, this passage, and praying this back to God. Let's pray. Thank you.